an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, does All-American football player Huber Pauly Grimm belong in the Husky Hall of Fame? I think he's just a, he's a faint memory uh, in the minds of football aficionados at the University of Washington. And then, from the archives, revisiting the closure of the Guild 45th and local movie theaters with second acts. The Seven Gables and Guild 45th theaters have closed. Please stay tuned for further details on our renovation plans for each location. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, how an old Auburn railroad family made the most of their home's location near the northern Pacific tracks. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. This story is my attempt to be more like Charles Kuralt, I think. Mm -hmm. Give it a try. Uh, (laughs) I heard from a guy named Dennis Brook with a story about his great-grandfather, who was a railroad engineer for the Northern Pacific for much of the first half of the 20th century. The railroad engineer's name was Frank Cavanaugh. He lived in Auburn with his wife in a house not too far from the Northern Pacific tracks. You know, Auburn was a western terminus for the Northern Pacific, which is now part of BNSF, and there was a big rail yard and roundhouse there from the early 20th century and onward. There's also a junction where trains went to either Seattle or Tacoma. Now, Frank drove trains to the Northern Pacific, and he often went right by his own house. So he and his wife developed a special way to communicate when he was nearing the end of his shift and headed west out of Stampede Pass. Their granddaughter, Joni, that's Dennis Brooks' mom, is in her 80s now, and she actually witnessed this special communication method several times from inside her grandma's house on R Street 70 years ago. So this is Joni Cavanaugh Brook telling the story about how her grandma and grandpa would communicate using a locomotive and a dish towel. Grandma lived about three blocks from the railroad track, Northern Pacific, and he would come in from probably Leicester or Yakima, and he would give her a signal, a toot-toot, and she would run looking for something white to to open the window, and then she would uh, flail the white rag out so that he would see that she'd heard it. So she'd go back, and then 10 minutes later, she'd take off and go pick him up from the roundhouse because they only had one car back then. (laughs) So I I just love the visual of that. Early text messaging. (laughs) Yeah, and that one car was a coupe, so the grandkids would all pile in the back and ride Uh standing up behind the front seat with no seatbelts, of course. Now, the Kavanaugh's probably weren't the only Auburn family doing something like this. Auburn really wouldn't be what it is without the Northern Pacific having built there. You know, and it really was a serious railroad town up until the 1960s. Now, Frank Cavanaugh, the whistleblowing railroad engineer, his career spanned the steam era with steam whistles and the changeover to diesel locomotives with air horns in the 50s. But since there's no recordings, I, of course, had to pester Joni Cavanaugh Brook to get her to demonstrate how her grandpa's signal whistle might have sounded. Ooh, ooh, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> she was a good sport. You could tell she was justifiably irritated by me, which so many people are, um, but she was definitely a good sport. Yeah. Now, the old roundhouse was torn down back in the 1980s, but there's still a rail yard in Auburn, and BNSF still runs trains over Stampede Pass and through Auburn. But some of the tracks where Frank Cavanaugh used to drive locomotives have been converted to trails. In particular, there's a really cool one called the Foothills Trail that goes between Puyallup and Buckley. 
Now, I tweeted out a map showing all the steps involved in this communication with the locomotive and the dish towel, and we'll have maps and photos at My Northwest a little bit later on this morning. I can't resist. I've been dying to use this thing, which I, which I, I keep in my little home studio here. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got to go pick up Grandpa. Yeah. Serving Greater Seattle. Don James, Sonny Six Killer, The Boys in the Boat. Those are just some of the sports figures, and there are women, too, in the Husky Hall of Fame at the University of Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell heard this week from a Seattle man who is working to get his grandfather inducted into this elite group, but who is not having much luck. Felix is brought to us by... Lake Washington windows and doors. Is this another crusade, Felix? No, no, I'm I'm merely the the conduit here for this story. Okay. Um, the man who called me is Scott Grimm. His grandfather is one of the Grimm brothers. No, not those Grimm brothers. These are uh, three guys from Centralia who played football for Washington beginning back in 1907. That's when Teddy Roosevelt was president, before the team was even called the Huskies. And this was during the time when a coach named Gil Doby uh, was in charge of the 40-game winning streak that went on in those years. Two of the Grimm brothers, Bill and Warren, were decent football players, but Scott's grandfather, Huber Grimm, nicknamed Polly, was great, and he was a multi-sport athlete. As a tackle for the football team, he was Washington's first All-American, the first All-American west of the Mississippi, and something of a real standout more than 110 years ago. And that's part of the problem, says Scott Grimm, since the Hall of Fame was only created in 1979. So I think he's just a, he's a faint memory uh, in the minds of football, football aficionados of the University of Washington. He belongs in the Hall of Fame, clearly based on all the all his, his exploits in other sports as well. You know, being the uh, U.S. wrestling champion in 1911, and also being a baseball player for the University of Washington, a trackster, and also wrestled for the University of Washington as a club sport. So the guy did it all. And then after his college career, Paulie Grimm was a pro wrestler back in the teens when pro wrestling wasn't quite yet a dramatic art. He also earned a law degree in his time at the UW and spent 30 years as a judge back in his hometown of Centralia, and he passed away in the late 1950s. But before we go any further, how exactly does a guy named Huber wind up getting called Polly? When he was a child, he was in a play, and he was Polyphemus, the Cyclops, the one-eyed Cyclops in the play. And they nicknamed him Polly, and it stuck. And he had that name all his life. Isn't that funny how that kind of stuff happens? So the Husky Hall of Fame is managed by the Taiyi Club, those boosters at the UW. There's a display in the lobby area of Heckhead Pavilion with a lot of plaques and things. Scott Grimm and his family are dyed in the purple and gold wool Husky fans. Uh, the family's been boating to games since 1954. This past year, Scott made time to put together a nomination packet to try and get his grandfather, Polly Grimm, in the Hall of Fame. They submitted the application last May, but then, well... It's crickets. Crickets. Not a word. We didn't even get a thank you for your application. I have confirmed that it was there. You know, I had a nice conversation with the secretary uh, or the assistant or whoever administrative assistant. But that was about that was about it. And then never heard anything until all of a sudden I saw on Twitter the announcement of those those people. And those people inducted at homecoming last October include football players like Marcus Tuasopo and Jake Locker, uh, tennis player Claire Carter, softball player Christian R Rivera, and the, uh, the group called the Five Who Dare that was four black players and a coach who led a protest against racial discrimination back in 1969. So a, a pretty distinguished group. Now, the guy in charge of the Hall of Fame and the nomination process is Jeff Bechtold. He's assistant athletic director for athletic communications at the UW. He's not sure why Scott Grimm didn't get notified. He's going to look into that. 
but he says there were a lot of nominations for this cycle. Uh, Jeff Bechtold also told me that, like other sports honors, the Husky version is very selective about who gets inducted. I would say this, you know, it, I, to be respectful as possible, there are a lot of people who could have a very good argument that they belong in this Hall of Fame or that Hall of Fame. Those arguments exist about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame, you name it, right? It's, it's a very, very high bar. I would say also this, you know, in the early years, most of the early history of Husky sports was put into the Hall of Fame. The people from the 1900s through the 19, say, 30s or so were almost exclusively, you know, put in those first, say, eight to ten classes of the Husky Hall of Fame back in the 70s and, and into the 80s. Um, teammates of, of Polly's like uh, like we Coyle and his coach uh, were both in the first two classes. So, you know, it's it's a high bar, and it's, you know, to be trying to be as respectful as possible, we get a lot of nominations. Last time, I think we got something like 50. Only eight got in. We've kind of covered the early portion of the history of, of, of UW athletics through those first, say, 10 or so classes. And we have a lot of deserving people that deserve to get in, and it's very, very difficult. It's hard to tell people no, but, you know, that's, uh, that's the nature of this kind of thing. So, I mean, I appreciate Jeff Bechtold's candor. Um, I asked him about Polly Grimm's chances, see, a year from now, if, if Scott Grimm kind of keeps up a campaign. And uh, Jeff Bechtold wasn't exactly encouraging. Uh, but meanwhile, Scott Grimm and his family aren't ready to give up just yet. It means the world to us. Because it, it, what it does is it recognizes an accomplishment by a very accomplished man. He helped put the University of Washington on the map. People deserve to hear and understand what he did. Just as much as any of the modern-day athletes uh, have helped the University of Washington. Now, there's one more fascinating aspect of the history of the Grimm brothers. This is really a distinguished family in Washington history. Polly Grimm is Scott's grandfather. That's who he wants in the Hall of Fame. Polly's younger brother, Warren Grimm, his nickname was Wedge. He was a UW football player who also fought in World War I. He's already an indelible part of Centralia history, Washington history, and really American history. Warren came back after the war and was in the, in the front of the parade leading the Veterans Day parade, and he was shot by some uh, IWW uh, guys. So he was one of four guys that were murdered on the, in the streets of, of Centralia. Yikes. Yeah, and that's the Centralia massacre of Armistice right. Day 1919 when there had been labor trouble brewing in Centralia for many years. There had been um, clashes between the IWW, the International Workers of the World, and uh, Warren Wedge was part of the American Legion. He'd recently returned from overseas, and he was in this parade. And it's they think the IWW guys were who fired first, but Warren was one of four, four people who died on that side. One of the uh, IWW guys was also uh, beaten to death and then lynched outside Centralia wow. there by the river. So all this history, I mean, it's not just sports history. It's not just political history or history of you know violence of 100 years ago. It's just this, it's all tied together. That's what I love about this story. I don't know if, if the Grimm family has much of a chance of getting uh, their grandfather into the Hall of Fame. It seems like, based on what Jeff Bechtold, Bechtold is saying, that they're pretty well, they pretty well think they've covered the early years, you know, in those right. early decades, before they were even the Huskies. Like, they've covered that very well. So, I don't know. Um, and, and, and like with Edgar Martinez and stuff, there's always these campa campaigns behind trying to get certain people into the Hall of Fame. I don't know if that will work in this case. It's it's really hard to say. I don't think they have enough experience and know. I don't but think when's there's the been next too vote many um, the, public the campaigns to get people in the Hall of Fame. When's the next vote by the committee that decides these things? They can submit nominations again, I think, starting late this year, and the committee will look again in 2023. They, they used to do it every year. They do it now every two years. Hmm. All right. Felix Bunnell, all of his features are available at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo. 
where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, when the Guild 45th in Wallingford closed down five years ago, we used that as an excuse to look at other former movie theaters. With the Guild in the news again, it was time to revisit this story. The Seven Gables and Guild 45th theaters have closed. Please stay tuned for further details on our renovation plans for each location. During the downtime, we look forward to serving you at the Crest Cinema Center. Please email customer service at landmarktheaters.com if you have any questions. Don't you hate messages like that? I know your story and Felix Bennell does because it means that a piece of the past is about to fade away. Our resident historian is brought to you by the King County Library System, and today we're talking about old theaters around western Washington. Yeah, the Guild 45th and the Seven Gables shut down unexpectedly last week, and that guy's voice sounds so excited about the future of those theaters. Yeah. The renovation has promised. Um, well, it is a renovation, though, right? It's unclear. I talked to or, a spokesperson for Seven uh, for Landmark Theaters who yeah. owns those two theaters the other day, and she was very non-committal. She really? was very vague. She so said she could mean it could mean a drugstore, huh? It could mean it could <laughs> demolish, start from scratch, build something new. It could be you know that block there on Forty Fifth in particular that could all be torn down, and maybe they'll put a theater in some big new six-story mixed-use thing. It's anybody's yeah. guess at this point. But it got me thinking about other theaters because you know Seattle Seattleites been watching movies for about about one hundred and twenty years, maybe since the late eighteen nineties. And theaters were built a lot in the early part of the century and in the 20s. Then they started closing in the 40s with the rise of television, late 40s. And then, you know, with VCRs and cable TV in the 80s, it's sort of, there have been these waves of theaters closing. And there's some really obvious ones in Seattle. There's like the uh, the Coliseum Theater at Fifth and Pike, turned right. into a Banana Republic Banana in 1984. Republic. I would, did you ever visit it while it was still a theater? Oh, yeah, I think I saw Witches of Eastwick was the last yeah. film I saw there, I think. Well, but it was also a, um, it was a live performance space as well. They, they used to put on the uh, musicals, and you'd sit around tables there, a little bit like the um, the, uh, oh, the music door. Yeah, a little okay. a musical thing. Yeah. Okay. And there's also the Broadway Theater up on Capitol Hill, which was turned into a pay-and-save back in 1990. Of course, pay-and-save is long gone. It's a Rite right. Aid. Now, those are obviously old theaters because of the marquees and everything. But there's a couple other places around town that aren't so obvious. There's uh, Over in Kirkland, there's the Gateway Theater, which actually closed like 50 or 60 years ago in the late 50s. It was built in the 1920s. It's right there on Central Way, kind of where the where Lake Washington, where Lake uh, Lake Street turns into Central Way. Right. And it's a skincare clinic now, but it's just you have no idea it was a theater. I was in there about 30 years ago. The sloped floor is still there. Yeah. Every little town had its own theater. In in the old the old economy where television wasn't on the scene, every little town had its theater. Every yeah. neighborhood had a theater. Well, Bellevue, remember the John Dance Theater in Bellevue? You know, and that building is still there. And I had, someone told me that last night. I didn't realize it the is. building is still there. But what's missing is the fiberglass dolphin that used to be in the lobby. <laughs> and no one, if, if anyone knows, text us at 98973. Where's the fiberglass dolphin yeah. from the old John That's Dance Theater? That's with the bubble wherever that yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my other favorite one is over in Revan, the Cinemond. This opened about 1970. I think I saw uh, 101 Dalmatians there in the first Star Trek movie. In 1981, a guy named Roger Forbes, a notorious guy around here who's right. owned adult businesses, he bought it. He called it a Christmas present to himself. He bought it in December of 1981, turned it into a porno theater in 1982. Do you remember this at all? It was this huge controversy, a suburban porno theater right there in downtown Redmond. And it was open for a couple of years. He also bought a couple theaters in Renton, the Roxy and the Renton. He tried to turn those into porno theaters. Renton had an ordinance that said you couldn't have an adult business within 1,000 feet of a church or a school or a residential area. That eventually went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided in favor of the city of Renton. The suit was City of Renton versus Playtime Theaters, and it, it let right. them enforce that. And so those theaters— And the Roxy's be- still there, right? Roxy, both of them are still there. I think the, uh, the Roxy became a, uh, the King Center. It's like a religious place. A lot of old theaters become churches, mm-hmm. kind of the theatrical part of it. The Renton is still there. It's not a movie theater. It's like a live venue for music and stuff. So Do you count the Lusty Lady uh, in your 
list of theaters that you're sorry to see close? I don't know, Dave. I didn't do enough, didn't do enough research down there to see if that actually qualified as a movie theater. I think there might have been coin-operated uh, film booths, but I think of theaters as where people gather to watch entertainment together, right? Live, yeah. You know, cinematic entertainment. But yeah. my favorite one, the Arabian Theater, uh, north where of downtown. That? It's on Aurora Avenue, right by, right just near Green Lake. It has this big sort of a, it's called the I Am Temple now or something. It's got this big oh. neon, or excuse me, uh, a circular uh, stained glass window. I, I had no idea until a few years ago that that was a theater. It looks like some sort of a kind of a Eastern-style architecture thing. It's right there by the highway, and that's when that was the main north-south road through town. Yeah, it is, it is a shame. Some of them, though, at least were, uh, were reclaimed, I know, and uh, repurposed like Banana Republic. At least they, they saved the, uh, the facade there. And, of course, the, uh, the Fifth Avenue has been uh, lovingly preserved, and the Paramount, which is also spectacular. Yeah, and some of those theaters were built to do both vaudeville, live performance, right. and movies, like the ones you just mentioned. And they still occasionally show classic movies there. So it's, there's still this desire among people to gather to watch movies. In spite of streaming services available on your devices and for your big screen TV at home, there's still value in getting together. It seems like, and people still want that. It might be that when they rebuild the Guild, if they do, it'll be a place where you can have dinner and buy a drink yeah. and pay like $100 to see well, a movie instead of $10. What's, what's saving movie theaters now, though, is those new seats. Like uh, yeah. Factoria. Remember Factoria? Oh, that was yeah, one, yeah. One of the uh, sort of downscale theaters. Now they put in those lounge <laughs> seats so you feel like this is, this is the poor man's first-class airline ticket. You, you can go into those theaters now, <laughs> and if you don't like the movie, you can get in a really good nap. Those are absolutely gorgeous And I always seats. fall asleep right away. I, I pay attention to anything, I fall asleep right away. And you can put your drink, you don't kick your drink over because there's a drink holder. Right. Actually, you could sit in that theater, and they just play a movie of you flying across the country, you know, like looking out a window, <laughs> and, the, and then you can get the feel of what it's like to fly first class. Yep. Some of them serve, uh, let you eat, and, yep. you know. Pay 50 bucks for a plate of hummus and crackers. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. But let's find out where the fiberglass dolphin went, because I'll go to any movie theater yes. that puts a fiberglass dolphin in the lobby. That and the gargoyles from the old uh, Coliseum. <laughs> You're going to start your own little museum, aren't you? Down now, there in the crypt. I don't like museums. The real history is out there on the streets. Yeah, that's right. I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's rainy in Seattle, baby. Please can I... This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO. Felix will enlighten you.